Hello, and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines. People just like you, working to understand viruses and how they affect you. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we are talking with postdoctoral researchers involved in coronavirus and COVID-19 related research so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. One of the potential treatments for COVID-19, which has shown some promise recently, are lab-made monoclonal antibodies. On September 9th, 2020, we talked with Dr. Seth Stost, a postdoc in the Crow Lab at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, who has had two recent first author papers describing protective monoclonal antibodies against SARS-CoV-2, some of which are now in clinical trials. Seth graduated from the University of Pennsylvania with a bachelor's degree in biochemistry and history and a master's degree in chemistry and stayed at Penn for his PhD in cell and molecular biology studying antigenic drift of influenza virus. Hi Seth, happy to have you with us today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, I grew up um, just a little bit north of Salt Lake City, Utah. And um, my parents are, um, my mom is a teacher and librarian and my dad um, is now retired, but worked in um, for an airbag company doing logistics. So get moving everything around, figuring out how to get things around. So um, I didn't really grow up in a family with um, science backgrounds necessarily. My parents were English majors and then had their, their careers, um, and, but they were always very supportive of um, interest in science. And so I, w- I would say I was generally pretty interested in science from a young age, but um, the, as you probably know, there's a difference between that and then when you decide that you want to do it for your career. So um, when I was applying to colleges, um, I ended up getting accepted um, to a, a program that at Penn called the Vagilos program in the molecular life sciences. And I ended up deciding to, to go to a Penn for my undergrad. Um, and so the idea of that program is um, it's basically a research intensive program where you sort of skip introductory laboratory courses and you do a lot of um, research uh, in, a, in a labs and you actually are there two summers and get a, a stipend as well. Um, and so that was a, a pretty intense experience to sort of make that jump, um, especially because I now I think um, certainly with younger scientists, I've talked to people that their first research experience in a lab has been in high school. And that was not certainly not my experience. Um, and so uh, that's sort of where um, I ended up getting a bachelor's in biochemistry and a master's in chemistry from that program. And then uh, from there applied to PhD and the, the rest is kind of history. Cool. And so when you were thinking about your PhD and then going on to your postdoc, um, sort of what steps did you take in order to kind of get to those um, different stages in your career? Yeah, so I think everyone kind of starts out in a similar way where they don't know what they're doing. And then they, they email someone and ask whether about like whether they can work in their lab. Um, and so I sort of had that similar experience. And I, I emailed uh, um, a PI at Penn, Jeff Bergelson, who's done a lot with um, uh, picornaviruses and identifying receptors. And so, um, so then I worked two years in, in Jeff's lab and really enjoyed that. Um, and that was all on the viral entry side. So figuring out how, how viruses get in, what pathways they use to get in, how they um, subvert uh, viral entry or normal cellular processes to get themselves into the cell. So 
I thought that was really interesting. And then when I was applying for grad school, um, looking looking back, I also didn't know what I was doing at the time, but I I knew that there were a lot of cool people at different places. And so I, I applied around and I, I ended up staying at, I was deciding between WashU and Penn um, mostly. And I ended up, ended up deciding to stay at Penn. Um, but when I stayed there, I uh, did a couple of rotations and um, I joined uh, Scott Hensley's lab because I really liked that. Um, and that, so Scott studies um, influenza virus antigenic drift. So how flu evades um, your antibody responses and your immunity by acquiring point mutations that alter the, subtly alter the protein, but allow it to escape. And um, so that's the reason why we need to get vaccines each year and why flu is such a difficult um, target for vaccine, vaccination strategies. Um, and then when I was applying for postdoc, um, I sort of had to uh, also coordinate my job search with um, my fiance who, um, while I was in uh, grad school, had started medical school at Vanderbilt. And so I sort of uh, was about to, so residency, there's not much of a choice. You, you sign up, you basically get matched somewhere and the, there's, you get, they rank you and you rank them, but the, the decision is sort of final. And like, at least on the science side um, for research, you, you sort of get the final say of whether or not you accept a, a postdoc offer. So I basically waited until I knew where she was headed so we could solve the long distance problem. And when she matched at Vanderbilt, um, that's when I applied to Jim Crow's lab because um, uh, he's a leader in antibody um, discovery as well as uh, works on a bunch of different viruses. So it was a good fit for, for my existing skill set with also with some opportunities to grow follow up on that, can you kind of describe some of the work you were doing in the Crow Lab before COVID? Yeah, so when I came, I was sort of uh, the, um, uh, most of my expertise was in flu, and we have quite a few flu projects. And so um, it was a good initial fit um, where I, I had experience, um, and I wouldn't have to learn everything from scratch, because I think there's a couple models for um, your postdoc is one would be to go and do something completely different, um, which is really um, can be really scientifically interesting, but it's also challenging because um, you're moving to a new city. You're sort of like a rotation student again, where you don't know where anything is in the lab. And then you're also like learning an entire new field of literature. And so this was sort of in, in the middle where there were, there were new techniques I was learning. And it, there was a, definitely like some differences in, 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 exciting new approaches, but I also had sort of the, the core background um, for flu. And so that was uh, a good thing, a good way to start off in the lab um, and sort of hit the ground running. Um, and then since then, obviously, things have, have changed a little bit with COVID. Thinking about your sort of your career so far, what has been the most exciting um, sort of eureka moment of your science so far? Yeah, the, I think there's a, those are kind of the things that keep you going. Um, cause uh, science is sort of, uh, like research is interesting in that you, um, there's oftentimes you figure out something and you're the, you're one of maybe like five people in the world that knows that thing at that moment before you publish it. And so, um, the first time I had that experience and so it probably left the strongest impression was, um, uh, when I was, uh, I had just finished my rotation at Scott's lab and, uh, my rotation project was we noticed there were a couple of mutations cropping up in recent flu strains. And so it looked like those mutations were going to become fixed and then dominate. Um, and so 
one of the um, one of the hypotheses would be that's because the, those are escaping antibody responses. But we didn't notice any difference when we were looking at um, sera from ferrets that had been immunized. So that's the, that was a standard model at the time for how the CDC and WHO choose to update our vaccine strains um, is escape from ferret sera. And so I generated those viruses, uh, those mutant viruses during my rotation, did a couple preliminary experiments, but then um, when I uh, moved on to my next rotation, Scott took the reagents I had generated and um, did a couple experiments with human sera. And what was really interesting was that those mutations had no effect on most individuals except for middle-aged adults. And so, that we were able to piece together that that was because um, those adults had been exposed to a particular flu strain when they were children. And then when the 2009 pandemic happened, there was a different H1N1 strain that jumped in and displaced that previous one. And so um, what ended up happening is that a subset of people made a highly focused response against targeting a single site on the virus. And then the virus was able to evade that. And so um, that was really exciting. Um, one to see like so see progress happen from a, a rotation project, but it was also I remember I lived just across the river from Penn, and so I remember walking in in the morning and just knowing that there was one um, like we were probably like four or five people in the world that knew this at the time, and so we were like working really hard trying to get the the paper out. And then um, what was really gratifying with that was um, a couple years or a year or two later, um, the WHO updated the vaccine um, because it was uh, of that escape from middle-aged adults. And they actually cited us in their um, uh, sort of report uh, justifying a, a new H1N1 H1 screen to be included. So that was, that was a really unique experience where, um, and also that was really cool to see something where you're doing the work for um, a basic science reason and just because it's interesting and then it has sort of this jump to where it, it suddenly has an implication for for public health wow that is cool very very cool so i guess on the converse side um what is the most difficult thing you've had to overcome in your science career so far and i guess how did you overcome it i don't think there was one particular instance but i think one of the challenging things is uh there's i people can tell you that you there your things are going to fail and actually things fail more often than they work and that's that's one thing to sort of hear and it's another just sort of experience especially when you're you're starting out and everyone in the lab has more experience than you and like it, nothing's really working and um there's sort of different ways that you can go about trying to fix that and so one of them would be you set up even more experiments and that's sort of a slippery slope where you, you end up working like 90 hours a week and you're actually, you have a, a sort of degradation in the quality because everything you're trying to fit a ton of time points in, do more than you can humanly do. And so, so you sort of have to figure out your limits. And then the other thing is that um, like if, for, for you to do well in science, you have to care a tremendous amount about what you're, you're doing, but you also in some ways have to be able to switch off that caring for individual experiments where something can fail, it can go wrong and you don't take it personally. And so that was sort of something that, that was challenging to learn where um, you can basically shrug off an, an individual failure and, but still care a lot about the big picture and, and just show up to work the next day and just restart things. 
So to follow up on that, so how do you do that mentally yourself? It's it's a hard sort of, um, it's almost like a weird, like toggling like things on and off. It helps to definitely have friends who are not scientists who um, you can sort of uh, walk out of the lab and just like hang out with them afterwards. Um, it was easier in pre-social distancing times to do that. But um, then I, the other, I guess, part of it is, um, uh, is it, it's sort of like tempering your expectations to begin with is, is kind of like um, one of those things. I think you become more and more cautious of, of sort of timelines um, over, over the course of your career. So when you're a grad student, your PI tells you, yeah, we can submit this paper in, in about a month there's like that initial wave of excitement. And when you're a postdoc, it's, it's definitely, I think by that time you sort of um, experience the, the, how, how things can go. And so you sort of have a more, a more realistic picture and that sort of like tempers things to begin with. So I guess um, you're just starting sort of your research career. If you had a chance to ask your older self, say you 70 years old, you know, you're getting towards retirement, um, one question, what would it be? What would you want to know? I guess uh, the question I would probably ask would be, what What was your biggest regret? Because presumably by that point, I hadn't, I hadn't made that mistake yet. Um, so I would have a chance to sort of course correct. Okay, so moving back towards uh, COVID. So how did you start working on COVID-19 research? So uh, as, as you well know, we have uh, 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 DARPA grant. Um, so the Defense Advanced, Advanced Research Projects Agency um, is a military research and development organization, and they've uh, they've done a lot of um, sort of cutting edge uh, um, research funding. So the internet was uh, something that came out of, of DARPA. They've also done a lot with um, uh, innovation around military hardware. And so um, a couple of years ago, they were thinking about um, in terms of uh, sort of threats that would would have threats to um, the United States as well as sort of society in general. And one of those is obviously um, uh, infectious disease, um, zoonotic spillover, where you have a, a virus that's never circulated in people before that jumps into human circulation. No one has immunity, and then you get a pandemic like we have now. And so they've that's been on their radar for quite a while. Um, and they've been thinking about how you you develop medical countermeasures for that. And one of the more powerful ones is antibodies. Um, but the, the trick with antibodies is that you need to discover them um, in a timeline that is where you can actually mass produce them. And so um, we, along with the Diamond Lab, um, Dan Baruch's lab, and, and uh, as well as folks at um, Infectious Disease Research Institute in Washington, um, we're awarded a, a large grant to study that with a couple, along with grants to a couple other sites where basically the idea is you discover antibodies uh, that can potently block the virus from getting into cells as quickly as possible. And then you um, mass produce those in a pandemic scenario. And so um, because of the sort of military philosophical component for uh, DARPA, everything is structured around capabilities demonstrations where you basically, it's basically like a drill pandemic. And so um, before I, basically right when I joined the lab, um, uh, the Zika um, drill was in full swing where um, uh, Crow Lab, Diamond Lab, and Dan Baruch went from uh, discovering blood sample to antibodies that had been 
validated in non-human primates in 78 days, um, which is, uh, is, if anyone knows, that's an a insanely fast um, timeline, even though it sounds like it's, um, it's very slow. Uh, but then uh, when I, uh, so when January of this year was rolling around, we were sort of gearing up for the next simulated pandemic. And uh, one of the things that we were planning on doing was obviously um, H5N1 and H7N9 uh, present pandemic threats. And so we were um, planning on using flu as a pandemic pathogen to um, simulate some, see whether we could shave some time off. And we had a meeting uh, in mi the middle of January um, where we sort of discussed uh, at that point, there have been about 40 some cases um, reported in China, uh, in Wuhan, China, of SARS-CoV-2. It wasn't even called SARS-CoV-2 at the time. Um, but we, we were sort of um, thinking about, uh, and the, the question was posed, should, should we start working on this? And we were basically, we were like, there's no evidence of human to human transmission. Um, we should probably do our flu stuff. That's, and that was the reason I was sort of involved was as the, um, the sort of resident flu expert in the lab. I was sort of the hired gun being brought on for, for that. And then uh, by the next week, uh, end of the next week, um, uh, 11 million people were under restricted movement in, in Wuhan. There were 500 cases. It was very clear that this virus um, robustly transmitted uh, person to person. And also that um, while the majority of cases people recovered, there were certainly like very severe cases in that if this spread more widely, there would be a lot of morbidity and mortality. And so that, at that point, we we basically converted over and um, then worked uh, through January through now on uh, COVID. And so we're only now starting to sort of revisit some of the other projects in the lab, but for quite a while, um, especially with the, the lockdown in March, um, uh, this was the only thing that we were do that was going on in our lab as well as your lab probably. Um, great. So can you tell us, I guess, a little, like you did a lot of work, but can you kind of summarize some of the work that you did? Um, obviously a lot of it was published, but can you just summarize some of it for us? Yeah. So uh, what we, essentially what our lab specializes in, and we do this for a variety of different viruses is identifying uh, what we call monoclonal antibodies. Um, so, uh, you have a bunch of B cells in your antibody and it's sort of, uh, they have genes that encode antibodies and antibodies are then secreted by B cells and those are able to bind to viruses uh, or bacteria or pathogens and tag them, uh, either block them from getting in the cells or tag them for destruction by your immune system. And uh, the way you recognize pathogens is you have an incredible number of those genes and they're randomly recombined. It's almost like if you're in a casino and there's like a slot machine, everything comes, those genes come up in different orders and combinations and that generates a lot of structural diversity. And so you're randomly rearranging these B cells and then you have what we call naive B cells that are circulating through your body that, um, that may be specific for SARS-CoV-2 and if the pandemic never happens, they go their entire life and they're never activated. If, if you're then infected or vaccinated, that B cell that's waited its entire life um, to sort of become a, a, what we call a memory B cell or an activated B cell, that B cell then fires off and then you make a, an antibody response to um, uh, the virus or, or vaccine. And so that's sort of, that's a, 
oversimplification and glossing over a lot of immunology, but um, each B cell is basically unique. And one of the ways that what we specialize in is identifying and characterizing large numbers of antibodies from large numbers of B cells, and then down selecting to figure out which ones are the most interesting or the um, neutralize the virus the most potently or have the most interesting function. Can you comment a little bit about the challenge of doing all this in the context of an actual pandemic? Yeah, so it depends on the, so basically there's a couple, there's a lot of different ways you can go about um, discovering antibodies. And one of the more promising and powerful ones is if you can, um, if you can express the protein that you're interested in uh, recombinantly, so outside the context of the, the pathogen, then you can use that, um, you can tag that with a, a, a protein that, or, or a compound that's going to fluoresce, so it's gonna glow when you stimulate it. And then you can, um, in a high throughput way, pull out, you can stain your um, B cell population and only pull out the ones that are reactive to that protein. So that's really powerful because then, um, even in, uh, cases like Ebola, where you have a profound, um, like Ebola survivors in some cases have 4% of their memory B cells are specific for Ebola. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but that's one of the highest antigen specific frequencies that's been reported. And so that's still, if you randomly picked different B cells, you would have four out of a hundred. And so in a lot of cases, it's even lower. So the key there is that you have to be able to make that protein. And that was one of the more stressful things. And that was actually my job at the start of the sprint was figuring out how to try to make, make that protein. And we, as a field, it's interesting because we were very fortunate that people had been working on SARS as well as seasonal coronaviruses. And so um, Andrew Ward, Jason McClellan and folks at the VRC had figured out um, how to stabilize um, the major protein on the virus surface, which is called spike. And so, um, spike is a viral fusion protein, so it's um, those proteins uh, undergo a conformational change, and they basically um, allow the virus to fuse with your cell and then insert its genetic material, and then the virus replicates. And so fusion proteins can vary in their stability, and coronavirus fusion proteins are actually quite unstable. And so the solution to that was to introduce stabilizing mutations to lock that protein in what we call the prefusion confirmation. And so for a lot of viruses, you have to have a prefusion stabilized antigen um, in order to sort out the in order to sort out anything that's going to neutralize, because those antibodies are going to lock that or they're going to block um, fusion that way. And so that paper was published in 2017 describing that solution for, for coronaviruses. And it's a fairly general solution. And it's also the basis of a lot of our vaccines. Um, really, uh, any, any vaccine candidate that's made with recombinant protein or is um, a lot of the mRNA ones that are being delivered, that those have that um, solution and uh, to lock the prefusion confirmation. So it's sort of an argument to invest in basic science because you never know what's you never know what you're going to need until you, you suddenly have a desperate need for it. And so that solution sort of happened three years prior. And so we and a, a lot of other people were able to use that work in order to um, express and, and verify that we had antigens that we could actually sort. And so that, that was definitely stressful. Um, but now uh, Jason McClellan and others have 
sort of improved on that. They've made versions that are more stable. Um, you can get more protein, which is, it's a difficult protein to produce. And so that's, um, it's sort of been amazing to watch how fast people have worked and the, the level of teamwork that's happened across different fields. So I guess moving on to the personal level, um, how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected you as an individual? I, I, it's interesting because I don't know if you feel the same way, but at least it's sort of, we had, we were sort of maximally impacted in our lab pretty early on. We had our first blood sample arrive um, January 25th. And so um, certainly I think in the U.S. there was sort of a delayed recognition that this was, was going to be a, a big issue. And given that we were working on it in very close proximity, we were um, quite apprehensive about it um, uh, being a pandemic and, and causing a, a significant impact on on everyone's life and so we we were working extremely hard January through March and then when sort of when everyone when multiple places around the US locked down it was sort of a surreal experience where our lives our lives actually didn't change at that point when everyone else's life was maximally impacted we were still going into work and still so that was sort of an odd odd thing to where you sort of saw something coming and and but then like the actual event where there was this massive societal change where people were social distancing and people were working from home sort of by the nature of the work we were doing we were still like that it didn't really change much in that that time so it's been it's been a fun thing to be involved with in the sense it's sort of awe-inspiring um it's all um in in terms of how fast people have worked and the the amount of work that's been done and certainly like fact that there's multiple phase three trials for vaccines is something that's really inspiring. And it's also been a little um, more than a little stressful in the sense that there's only so fast you can work. Um, and there's only so many, there's only so fast you can move and yet there's still this dire need. And so that I would say um, most people in antibody research and vaccines, this is sort of, uh, we, uh, we hope this is a wake up call that, that some of this work needs to be done prior to a pandemic as well as clearly we need to rethink some of the, some things on the public health side and there needs to be more outreach and sort of a, a more consistent communication message and trying to get people to understand the reasons behind particular things and and it's um there's a lot of challenges that we'll face over the next couple of years for sure to follow up on that i mean you've been working a lot so how do you sort of balance sort of work and keeping keeping sane, keeping some sort of um, ability to function as a person and not be overwhelmed? Yeah, it's been challenging. Um, at least the way, one of the ways we've been dealing with it is um, there, there's certainly a restricted sort of menu of activities that, that you can choose from and, and, and actually do safely. And so um, we've been, uh, and, and we're, we're not alone in that. There's a lot of people that are, are sort of doing that. So there's a park in, Nashville called Percy Warner and right now that's like Central Park level occupancy like the entire city is basically there um, on the weekend so we've sort of been trying to go a little further afield and check out different state parks that are in the area and, and do hikes on hikes like sort of morning hikes on the weekend get some physical activity in and also do something that's that's safe and, and sort of away from people and so um, and where we're not um, you know, not packing into a crowded restaurant or something. So um, that's sort of like, I'd say the major way that we're trying to, uh, the, the other thing that we, 
we were actually excited about doing and um, actually got harder because everyone had the same idea was um, my fiance and I like the gardens to me. We were planning on planting a bunch of heirloom tomatoes and we, and then it was a little harder to find everything because then everyone had the same idea where they were, they were sort of stuck at home and then decided they wanted to, to brush up on their agricultural abilities. So, so I got a little harder. We, we sort of, everything was back ordered in terms of like tomato steaks and everything, but we, that was, that was definitely, we, we have, we've had a nice crop of, of tomatoes this year. So that was sort of like a, a nice and like gratifying thing is like, even if like stuff failed in lab that day, you can go home and there's like something that you grew and, and made. So. Great. So I guess sort of to follow up on that as a virologist, how do you make decisions about how to keep yourself, your family or your community safe? How do you evaluate risk? How do you think about that? I think it, one thing that's, and it's hard from a, it's hard to communicate in terms of a public health message, um, because I think, unfortunately, we, a lot of our communication is just 10 second sound bites, and people want sort of a, a, a bullet point answer. Um, but one of the things is like, the risk is, uh, you're, uh, it's not like a binary, this is incredibly risky, or this is zero risk, it's a continuum. And so that's, and so there's a lot of um, the, basically there's a lot of air, like, uh, because of how the virus transmits, which we think now is, is, uh, is aerosol transmission is quite a big driver. Um, there's uh, being indoors is a lot more risky than being outdoors because being outdoors, you have a lot more circulation of air. Um, there's also the sun is actually quite uh, certainly in Tennessee in the summer is, is quite good at inactivating virus. So it's, it's a lot safer to be outside than inside. Um, and the other thing that we know is that um, asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic transmission is a major factor um, for this virus. So that's unlike other viruses. So Ebola, if you're infected, you're generally not infectious until after you started showing symptoms. And also because that virus is so severe, you have if you were showing symptoms, you were going to be in a hospital bed. And um, so it's a lot easier to track and trace um, Ebola cases than it is COVID cases, because some people never show symptoms at all. And other people are, they may develop symptoms later, but they've already been going around and transmitting um, for three days. And so that's the justification for mask wearing, especially if you, it's so the more, most important thing is to avoid um, being indoors, um, close to people for prolonged periods of time and everything is mitigation at that point. The more you can not have that high density, hold things outside, be um, distance from each other um, as much as possible, as well as wearing masks, all those things. So sort of the gold standard would be everyone's outside wearing masks or, and you know, not, not really minimizing interactions, but there's, there's just sort of the, there's only so much that you can, you can do. And so it's about the, the thing that's most responsible is to sort of shift your, your behaviors in a way where you sort of minimize the, the risk to yourself and others. I guess sort of personally, how do you think about that? Yeah. And some of it is at least as a consumer, you sort of have options. Um, and that's definitely not true everywhere, but being in Nashville, which is a decently large city, there's, um, you have, if there's a grocery store that's like, we're sort of fortunate here in that we have a, a mandatory mask um, mandate um, for restaurants, grocery stores, et cetera. Um, but we, 
certainly there's different grocery store chains that have mandated that nationwide. So I'm a, I'm a, I, I'm a Costco member. So that, uh, so that's sort of one thing is that you, uh, Costco nationwide has mandated mask wearing in stores. And so that's, you can, uh, certainly that's one way that you, you sort of have a menu of options, hopefully where, um, there's stores that are enforcing particular behavior or airlines that are enforcing a particular behavior or, and so there's what you can sort of minimize, but for the daily, daily activities, you can sort of hopefully try to choose to frequent the places that are doing things like contactless pickup. It's not the, and as well as like some of our favorite restaurants, obviously like everyone in the service industry is having a really hard time. Um, and it's been nice to see how, a lot of restaurants have really responded and adapted um, like from pastry shops to different places. And so um, in terms of having mask, mandating mask wearing, having, we, we haven't really been going, going to sit down restaurants, but we've been getting uh, takeout or contactless or minimal contact pickup from different places. All right. Well, I guess we're wrapping up. Um, any last messages for our listeners? Any thoughts about the COVID-19 pandemic? Where do you see it going? Well, I don't think anyone thinks that this is going away. So we're sort of on on a path where this is probably going to be, um, so there's four human coronaviruses and this is probably going to become the fifth. And so um, people have speculated about the, because the four that we have are not really that pathogenic. And so one, one, one sort of hope would be that once you have, um, that once you have, uh, the sizable chunk of the population that has neutralizing antibodies that this isn't as big a deal. And that the hope is that we would get there with vaccination. Um, the negative thing would be if we get there with um, the virus spreading unchecked through populations. And so that, because that would, we know from that would um, have a tremendous societal cost, um, both in terms of lives as well as um, uh, the lost economic activity from having to lock down to prevent the loss of lives. Um, and so people have sort of speculated when that happens and, and this is circulating endemically, um, maybe it'll be less severe and it could be, but there's also um, a tremendous amount of uh, um, disease that's caused by seasonal influenza every year. And, and what was interesting is, it, and I've sort of talked about this with people is um, previously there was definitely, um, definitely people have shown up to work when they're sick. And certainly I've done that. Um, uh, given that you're working long hours and then, and so one of the things that might be interesting is if we can sort of revisit some of those habits and maybe if you are symptomatic during respiratory virus season, you should wear a mask if, or you should stay home if you can. We also in some ways need to, as a society, build in the ability to make the right decisions where you're not going to, if you are feeling sick and you're going to a job, especially if you're in the healthcare industry, and and you have flu if you're if you're flu infected you can and you're working at a nursing home or something you can really dramatically impact people's lives but um you also need to we need to have sort of the job security and the the ability for where you can make a responsible decision to stay home and so it's that's a i i don't know whether we'll get there i hope that one of the things that this one of the i hope one of the consequences of um the pandemic is that we're much more mindful of the effect that we can have on, on others and the need to make not only individually responsible decisions, but also as a society to make decisions that um, allow people to actually um, 
make decisions that are good for public health. Great. Thanks a lot, Seth. Seth's work this spring and summer, along with that of many collaborators and other virologists in labs throughout the world, has identified multiple monoclonal antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 that are currently in clinical trials. His experiences highlighted the importance of funding basic research, which was vital to allowing him and others to respond so rapidly to the COVID-19 pandemic. This has been Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, and Amazon Music Podcasts, or at lmtv.podbean.com. If you are a virologist interested in sharing who you are and what you do, please contact us at letusmeetthevirologists at gmail.com. 